and welcome to season two, episode two of Prove Me Wrong, Please. In this episode, I discuss income inequality with a conservative I met on Reddit, actually, uh, after he responded to a post I made a while back just seeking opposing opinions on politics. Now, before I get into a few sort of preliminary details about our conversation, I will note that I actually wanted this topic of income inequality to be the theme of last week's episode, given that last Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day and fighting income inequality was a major focus of his efforts after the passage of the Civil Rights Act uh, and before his assassination, and frankly, one that I don't think has received enough attention with regards to honoring his legacy. But due to just all the craziness that was the last couple of weeks, I decided to hold on to this recorded conversation that we actually had about a month ago until now. Uh, Income inequality, I feel, is at the root of many large-scale issues, um, and a lot has happened over the course of the last week uh, that is somewhat relevant, including the appointment of Janet Yellen, who became the first female Treasury Secretary in U.S. history uh, earlier this week. Um, She's made fighting rising income inequality a major focus of Um, her agenda in the Biden administration, so I'm excited for that. Uh, I also just think this topic is very relevant to the the overall debate surrounding the size and scope of the next round of coronavirus stimulus, which is now yet another point of debate in the Senate. Also this week, two separate reports were published that found over 200 million people around the world will likely sink into poverty as a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic economic effects. While at the same time, America's billionaires have seen their wealth increase 40% over the last year, which is about over like $1 trillion. So basically what I'm saying here is just that the issue of just rising inequality is one that is obviously extremely complex um, and not just local to the United States, but especially one that needs to seriously be addressed in building the post-COVID world at home and abroad. Now, a couple of things before I drop you into the actual episode. Um, Firstly, as you'll quickly notice, my conversation uh, with T.R. Smith, uh, who hosted the conversation actually as part of his new podcast called Square Off, um, was, like I mentioned, uh, about a month ago. So a few things have obviously changed since then, but the larger themes of what we discuss essentially remain the same. Also, it's worth noting that prior to our chat, uh, TR recommended a Netflix documentary about the topic of income inequality uh, to base our conversation off of. And although I only got about halfway through it prior to our conversation, it's definitely one that I plan on finishing uh, and would definitely recommend to anyone listening who is interested in this topic. Um, I'm not really sure what the title is. Um, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but he mentions it somewhere uh, during our convo. So I guess you'll just have to listen um, to get it. Anyways, um, the purpose of my podcast, like I've mentioned before, is to have a conversation with those of opposing opinions about contentious issues. So I am very grateful for TR for responding to my Reddit post and having this conversation with me. Now, as always, feel free to email me at pmwp.pod at gmail.com or call my new Google Voice number 415-763-PMWP if you want to share your thoughts or opinions on a future episode. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy our conversation about why I believe income inequality is a serious problem. And once again, I encourage you to prove me wrong, please. Smith 
Smith here, and I have Connor here from the podcast, Prove Me Wrong, Please. So welcome, Connor. How's it going? Good, good. Well, thanks for joining us today. And, you know, I'm launching this new podcast, and the podcast, the premise of the podcast is really a debate between the left and the right. And I feel like there's definitely a a gap in the market for (laughs) people who may enjoy having some intelligent debate in their life where they can hear both sides. And it feels like so many people are sort of stuck in their own bubbles. And even if you're not stuck in your own bubble, it's hard to find content from both sides or any kind of intelligent conversation between the two sides. Or, Or if you do find it, it's on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. So my hope is this podcast will sort of fill a need that's out there for people who want to hear both sides and at least want to understand what the, what the opposite side might be thinking about. So I appreciate you making time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me on. I, I completely agree. I think today's political discourse is a lot of shouting. And so any opportunity to actually have a, an honest conversation that seems a little more constructive is uh, one that I'm happy to jump on. Well, cool. And, you know, you and I talked earlier today about, you know, maybe we'll focus a little bit on income inequality, which is a pretty broad topic, but you know, it also came to mind because I saw this interview with, with James Carville, who was, you know, a big political strategist. And it was interesting. He said, you know, he feels like the two big issues of our time to address right now are, you know, climate change and income inequality. And, you know, granted, he does, he does not speak for the Biden administration coming in necessarily. But it was mm-hmm. funny when he said that. I just thought, you know, it's, it's funny how people sometimes maybe occupied completely different worlds. And and maybe down the road, we'll get into the global warming piece, which, again, might be a big issue, but I I don't know that it's the top issue that people are focused on. Uh, And then the income inequality, even just the way people sort of phrase it as the problem, quote unquote, of income inequality, it, it makes me question the way the left maybe approaches these things. Because if James Carville had said, well, I think there's a big problem with poverty in this country. I probably agree. If, if you said there's a big problem with the middle class getting squeezed, especially in certain cities and states around this country, I would probably agree. But it's funny when, when, when you throw out a concept like income inequality and, you know, I just wonder, is, is income inequality by itself really a problem? You know, is it really such a big deal that we have a certain you know, number of people in that top 1% or the top one-tenth of 1% that have all this wealth. Is that really a problem all by itself? Or should we just be focused more on how do we help people that need, that might be stuck where they are and they need some help? What's your take on that? So I would probably have to agree with uh, James Carville. I think, honestly, poverty and income inequality are kind of one and the same. Um, I think even global warming is tied to, in my mind, income inequality in the sense that uh, poverty increases when there is a massive disparity between those who have a lot of money and those who don't. And I think over the last like 40 years, as, as we've kind of seen the erosion and almost disappearance of the middle class that existed during you know the 1950s, post-World War II era, you have seen a sort of corresponding, corresponding rise in crime. And so I, I think answering the question, like, how do you solve you know, poverty is essentially asking, answering the same question of like, how do you solve for this rising income inequality that I think exists today? Um, and I think, you know, a, a, an argument for addressing income inequality is, is not that it's a zero sum game, um, like Thomas Piketty had mentioned in that documentary, for example, but 
uh, when you, you, you know, provide opportunity and economic growth uh, that is shared a little more equally, not 100% equally, because that is uh, essentially unsustainable and um, impossible. Um, but when you sort of uh, provide a more even playing field, it helps everyone. I mean, you know, the saying a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, the problem is a lot of those boats right now are sinking. And I so, think that that is yeah. what leads to poverty. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe if we have time, we'll get into the, the pandemic stuff too, but maybe for now we'll sort of think about the, the pre-pandemic world and <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll get back there in another six months or 12 months. But, you know, so, so let me ask you, I mean, when you think about it, well, maybe I'll lead off with kind of my solution. You know, if I could be king for a day and someone said, hey, give me your anti-poverty program, right? You know, how would you lift people up? You know, my, my guess is that my wish list would be very different from your wish list or Joe Biden's wish list or, you know, my wish list might look like this. You know, number one, we need to help people who are in failing schools, um, mm -hmm. whether that's a little more spending or whether it's school vouchers and charter schools and breaking up the teachers unions and just doing something radically different so that low-income kids that are stuck in a failing K-12 education program suddenly will have a better shot. That might be step one. Step two might be, you know, a, in high cost of living cities and states, how do we build more housing? Not just giving people affordable housing, but how do we just build more units where, you know, people, the middle class especially is getting squeezed because they just, they, they can't afford what's out there. And then people have this not in my backyard approach where it's like, okay, you know, we don't want, you know, we don't want more traffic. We don't want more apartment buildings, but that is part of what we need. You know, even for those rich people in their houses, if they want their kids to live anywhere near them, <laughs> they're probably going to need, you know, more housing being built. That might be part of it. And the other part of it might be, you know, just figuring out what are the other sort of pro-growth policies that are out there. You know, Trump had his big tax cut. The biggest part of that was, I think, the corporate income tax reform, which, you know, I, I thought was was a great uh, change for, for businesses in America. I think that there are elements like that where I'd like to see more growth, more, you know, addressing not just failures in the market, but failures in government that, we have not been helping these people out. And I, I won't go on too long here, but you know, maybe an expanded, they had this thing, the earned income tax credit, where if you're part of the working poor, you get essentially money from the government because you at least worked and you're gonna get sort of a refund on your taxes, even though you didn't really pay much in taxes. So there's there's things like that that I'd love to see, but you know, we'd love to sort of, and, and, and you don't have to address my wish list, but you know, thinking about Biden coming in, thinking about people like Robert Reich, who might be excited for a change, you know, what do you think are some of the changes that, that you're excited for that you would like to see if, if you were king for a day or if you had control over Congress, you know, what might you want to see to really tackle that problem of income inequality? Well, so I would say my wish list is very similar to yours. I, I agree that um, investing in education uh, is primarily a uh, it should be a focus of this new administration because I think, you know, history has proven that um, investing in education creates the best return uh, in on the economy. Um, and so I think it, the, the manner in which, you know, this administration addresses that is kind of still up in the air and I don't necessarily have a perfect solution um, for that, but paying more attention on uh, early education, which has proven to have 
many dividends down the road is important. Um, the second thing you mentioned, you know, housing, I, investing in infrastructure is very important. I mean, the United States has quite literally a crumbling infrastructure. And I think that provides a huge opportunity to create jobs uh, for kind of like low skilled, uh, low educated workers across the country um, in a lot of the places that could benefit the most from this sort of surge in um, labor uh, across the country. And then the third thing you mentioned is another thing I would absolutely kind of agree with, you know, reforming tax policy. Now I am certainly no fan of the 2017 uh, like Trump tax cuts, because I think the vast majority of those benefits went to the wealthiest Americans. And I think a tax policy that distributes um, or, you know, doesn't cut capital gains tax taxes, which only really benefit like the top 10% of Americans and actually redistributes more of the tax benefits to the middle and lower classes would be huge because it would essentially provide, you know, lower income people with more money to spend, uh, which I think is very important at this time when I think pre-pandemic, something like like 60% of Americans said they couldn't afford like a $400 like emergency medical payment or something. I mean, we're living in the wealthiest country in history. I feel like something like that should not exist. And, you know, a, a quick and easy solution that the Biden administration could take could take to address um, that particular issue is um, creating a tax system that is just more progressive and uh, doesn't necessarily benefit those who make all of their fortune on, you know, money and, and not actually working like a day job. Um, yeah. So, I mean, to... To your original point, I think we agree on more, like a lot more than you'd think in terms of like the overall, uh, you know, umbrella solutions. I guess it's just more like the actual tactics that. Yeah, and I know, you know, so well, maybe I'll pick on a couple areas where we might disagree. You know, th there's always a big debate over like you know increasing the minimum wage, for instance. And so the <laughs> the classic sort of conservative and libertarian argument is. Look, you might not even need a minimum wage. I mean, even some of the democratic socialist countries like, you know, Norway and some of these countries, they don't even really have a minimum wage. That's not part of their system. They may have high taxes and big benefits, but they don't feel the need to intervene in the market and say, this person who has no job skills and all they do is move boxes around all day. So the conservative approach is, look, well, you can't just increase their wage to $15 an hour because you're going to end up with distortions in the market. Some employers are just not going to be able to afford to hire these people because there's just a mismatch there, or they're, they're going to invest more in robotics and computers that are going to replace some of these workers. But, you know, whenever I do listen to people like Robert Rice or Bernie Sanders or even Joe Biden, they tell you, no, 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 we need a big increase in the minimum wage, which, you know, can, can cause those distortions. And it may not be the, the right recipe because you may end up in many cases, creating more unemployment in those situations. Yeah. Well, so I, I mean, I don't know. I would argue that, that, um, that argument is just not legitimate, I guess. Um, I mean, it's certainly legitimate, but not one that I would agree with. I think uh, there are plenty of States that have already increased their state minimum wage to $15 an hour and have been fine. I, I understand that there are smaller companies that might not be able to afford hiring the same number of companies, but I mean, in this day and age, like these companies are already trying to find ways to reduce their costs on labor. And so they're, they're going to invest in automation regardless of what the actual minimum wage is. Um, and I, I think about this, uh, you know, I think this was mentioned in the documentary that, you know, 
50 or this is, this is the capital in 21st century documentary. Yeah. I, I okay. think it was mentioned there. Um, you know, like 50 years ago, the, the largest employer of Americans was general electric and uh, accounting for inflation, their average wage was $40 compared to today where the largest employer of Americans is Walmart uh, whose average employee makes about $11 an hour. And so I feel like this kind of race to the bottom in terms of like, trying to eliminate any sort of protections for workers, especially considering now that, you know, labor unions essentially do not exist. Something like 6% of American workers uh, are participating in a, in a union. Um, this race to the bottom is, is just not going to work given that there are other countries around the world who are always going to be able to provide labor for much cheaper than we yeah. are here. Although I guess I'd say in fairness, comparing GE to Walmart is kind of apples and oranges, right? I mean, they, they may yeah. have been the largest employer, but they were, they and they are, I guess, still more or less a, a technology company that was employing people to do a certain job. Walmart is a bigger employer today because they've figured out ways to deliver goods cheaply and it just, it's, it's kind of a different animal, right? So I don't know if it's fair to... I guess my argument is like, I just don't believe that anyone who works a full-time job in today's society in the richest country should live below the poverty line. Um, and it sort of like comes back to that argument I was making earlier. Like when you provide more income, disposable income for lower class people, it ultimately boosts the economy and is better for everyone, including those at the very top. And it's the same reason that, you know, you know, Henry Ford famously paid his workers very well because he, you know, didn't do it out of some altruistic urge. It was more just because he wanted his employees to actually afford to be able to buy his cars. And I think that mentality is kind of lost today and is one um, th that has proven to actually work um, and is not necessarily a job killer that a lot of uh, companies argue it, it is. Yeah, I guess the question, though, is like, how do you do that at scale, right? I mean, uh, and, you know, in fairness to some of these companies like Walmart and Amazon, I mean, they in, in the last few years, a lot of their employees have gotten a raise just because there is that demand, that increased demand for their labor. They need people to work. And so that is how wages ultimately rise. And but but wages know, have haven't risen in quite a long time. I mean, average purchasing power has remained essentially stagnant since 1980. But I mean, the corporate profits are at all time high. So like the pie is getting bigger, but like the slices that people like you and I, at least me, are able to eat is almost like staying the same, if not getting smaller. Yeah. But in, um, you know, at some point I might release a full movie review and just for the audience that may not have caught it, there, there's a Netflix documentary called Capital in the 21st Century. And it is sort of a movie version of the Thomas Piketty book called Capital, which came out many years ago. Um, but it's been very influential in certain economic circles. But but going back to your your comment about you know stagnant wages, you know that comes up in the movie, and I think what what the movie sometimes loses sight of is you know even though wages might be stagnant, let's say for the middle class, for instance, and we'll shift gears a little bit. We can come back to the lower working classes for for, for a minute. But you know people say well the middle class wages have been stagnant for twenty years. Let's just sort of take that as the rough the rough number for, for now. But what was sometimes gets lost in that is you can have stagnant wages, but still have an increased overall standard of living. Like if you go back to 1980, you know, we have a much higher life expectancy than we did back in 1980. So, you know, something is working where people are still benefiting. 
you know, wages may not have increased greatly from where they were back in 1980, but, you know, we have so many more technological advances that make our lives better. You know, we have everything from free two-day shipping to Netflix streaming to smartphone with high-speed internet in your pocket to computers and podcasts. I mean, all, all the things that we sort of use on a daily basis that that, are, that sort of make life fun and make life <laughs> more convenient um, and in some ways make life less expensive to live. You know, I mean, the, Walmart, Walmart may have, you know, put a certain number of mom and pop shops out of business over the years, but, you know, they've also delivered low prices and same thing with Amazon. You know, they've, they've, they've delivered a lot of value to consumers in a way that the, the average wage earner today is not making much more than they did 20 or 20, 30 years ago. And yet their overall quality of life is better. The average life expectancy is better. So I feel like that that's, that's the real metric and not just what is their, you know, pre-tax income. Yeah. I mean, I guess I wouldn't argue that life is better now than it has been at any point in, in the past. I think that's something that a lot of young people sort of lose sight of. Um, but I mean, with that said, like, you know, the fact that like the three wealthiest Americans essentially own the same amount of wealth as the bottom half, I feel like we're kind of entering this similar kind of like gilded age uh, in with a bunch of like robber barons that we were at, at the end of like the 19th century. And I just don't think it's sustainable. So like, yeah, even though uh, standard of living is still increasing, although I will mention, I believe uh, the mortality or the average life expectancy in the United States has been decreasing for the last like few years. And it's, that's not, yeah. that's not directly tied to, income, although it's definitely a part of it, it has to do with, you know, the opioid crisis and um, the 2008 financial crash and whatnot. But I guess my point being like, I, I'm not satisfied with the benefits um, that are being shared uh, around this country, given how productive and successful we have been in, in modern history. And I, I think that, um, I don't know, like, you know, one, one argument that always kind of irks me is, you know, when people kind of point to the stock market doing well as, you know, the sole indicator of, you know, the United States and the average American doing great, that sort of misses the point that like, I think the top 10% of Americans own like 80% of stock wealth. And so like the vast majority of people have no kind of skin in the game. And so it, it seems to me that like a lot of people are not enjoying a lot of the benefits of this booming economy, at least, you know, pre-pandemic. Um, and in, in order to include them into like the everyday economy and um, increase not just like their wages, their standard of living, but just like the overall functioning of our democracy and society. It's an, it's essential to um, find ways to make it a more even playing field where they don't feel like all the kind of chips are stacked against them. Well, I, I would agree that a lot of times wall street is separate from main street. I would agree yeah. with that as kind of a general statement. Um, I'm not sure if your numbers are, are quite right. I mean, I think that, you know, you have at least 60% of people who own at least some stock and some mutual fund. And even people who think they don't own any stock, they may have a pension of some kind, you know, whether mm -hmm. you're a public employee with a pension or a private employee with a pension, you know, your pension is invested in stocks and bonds. And, you know, you should be cheering for a, a great stock market because if the stock market ever tanks, that pension is going to be in trouble. I mean, there are pensions already in trouble even with a good stock market, there are pensions in trouble because <laughs> they haven't been funded correctly. They haven't been managed very well. Um, which that, that could be a whole other topic. But I, I would I would challenge that assumption that you know that there's a huge disconnect between 
what the average worker on Main Street wants to see and what Wall Street wants to see. Ultimately, a rising stock market is good for people at all income levels. Yeah, but I, again, I think it's like disproportionately good. And so it's it's important not to lose sight of the fact that, again, like the vast majority of stock market wealth is owned by the richest or the wealthiest Americans. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, obvi- you know, obviously you agree that w- there's a difference between Wall Street and Main Street doing well. I just worry that a lot of people are kind of losing sight of Main Street and focusing entirely on on Wall Street. And I, I refer to like Donald Trump always pointing out the stock market doing great. I know you're probably not the, the biggest fan of Trump, but I think there are a lot of people who kind of give him credibility based on, you know, the stock market uh, doing pretty well prior to the, the pandemic and the resulting yeah. uh, economic crash. And I mean, in the, in the stock market recover under Obama too, but there were still plenty of poor people sort of wondering where their piece of the pie was under Obama yeah. too, right? So yeah, yeah. But and and you know one one more thing I'll I'll, I'll pick up on there because um, I've heard people sort of use that um, that reference about you know the top three billionaires in the U.S. have the equivalent wealth of the bottom half of the country uh, or whatever that number is whether it's the top three or the top twenty it, it doesn't matter that much it's the top three yeah is the top three I think some people hear that number and they focus on the top three and they think well what went wrong that these top three people got so much money <laughs> but the other way to think about that is well, what went wrong with the bottom 50% in terms of wealth? And again, you know, for, for people listening to this, you know, whenever you hear people talk about wealth and income, you have to understand they're not always the same thing. It's there's your income is what you're making every year that you use to pay the bills. And then the wealth is sort of what you accumulate over, you know, a period of time. So talking about wealth, I mean, one of the problems in this country is that we don't really teach people, especially the bottom 50% or whatever the metric might be, we're not really teaching them how to save and invest and manage their money, which might be a whole different problem that we have to address that's sort of unrelated to how rich Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are, that, that we have to sort of address those problems separately. And that, you know, it, it, it kind of comes back to, well, how do we lift people up? Not just, you know, how much do we worry about the wealth of the, of the people at the top? Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would agree that I think teaching sort of like financial savvy and um, and whatnot is something that I learned from my parents, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily have that opportunity, especially if they kind of grow up in in a household that is broken, for example. But I also think it's a little bit more complex than just like learning how to save your money and manage your money. I think it's also uh, it's important to keep in mind that like a lot of wealth in this country, especially is inherited. I, I'm pretty sure something, and again, I think this was mentioned in the documentary, something like 60% of wealth in this country is handed down from generation to generation. So like, while there are certain families that are like building equity over generations, there are others that are just trying to, you know, stay above the poverty line and, and are struggling just to keep up. And so by the time that they are in a position to start saving money, the, they're just, there are a lot of other external factors that are kind of preventing them from doing so. So it, it almost seems like this negative feedback loop where, um, yes, education is certainly an important factor, but it's not, it can't be the only one. Yeah. And again, you know, I would just encourage people, you know, maybe one day if, if we have time, we can really dissect some of the numbers and, and you know, really, really dive into it. But, mm-hmm. you know, today is sort of a day to, to sort of lay, lay the groundwork of what's to come, I guess. But, you know, again, I would, I would, I would challenge you and challenge any listeners to really think, to really look 
sometimes beyond those numbers. So, you know, you mentioned, um, well, going back to what you said about the, you know, 40, 50% having essentially no wealth or, you know, mm. that that's equivalent to what the top three people have. There's, there's different ways to sort of look at the numbers. I mean, there are other metrics where you look at the top, sorry, the bottom 30, 40% in terms of wealth, and they, they essentially have nothing. You know, well, first of all, you're always going to have some distribution of people with a tiny amount of wealth and pe- some people with much more wealth. But understand that when you look at the numbers and you look at, well, who, well ha- what, what does that population look like of people in that bottom 20%, the bottom 40% of wealth? And this is true for income too, but um, but staying on wealth for a minute, it is mostly younger people. You know, if, if they had done that survey of me when I was 20 or 25, my total wealth number, it wasn't zero, but it was very, very low. And you survey me now, I'm in my 40s, my wealth number is much higher. And so there is an evolution of, yes, when you're young, you're poor. <laughs> when you're older, hopefully you've, you've accumulated some assets. Now, obviously there are poor people that are broke. Or, I'm sorry, there are older people that are still broke, but people, I, I do hope that people, you know, maybe yourself included, can also look beyond those numbers and say, you know what, the problem might not be quite as bad as I think, because a huge portion of these poor people and low income people are actually just young people entering the workforce who are one day going to be middle class and even upper middle class. And again, I hate to keep bringing up Trump, but like, you know, his slogan, make America great again, I think elicits this sort of like mentality among a lot of his supporters of like, you know, like I mentioned, post World War Two era, where, you know, there was a single breadwinner who could kind of support a middle class family. And that just like does not exist today. Um, the vast majority of workers live paycheck to paycheck and can't kind of afford the same style of living that was once attainable. And and I don't think that's just, you know, young people. I think uh, young people, you know, are certainly less well off than, than those who have been able to kind of like build up savings and stuff. But I, I just think the system itself has just changed uh, in favor of the wealthy who are able to use their wealth and um, to gain political favors and just political influence. Um, and again, kind of continue to, to rig the system in their favor. Um, and so I, I, I don't know, like I, again, bring this back to like how we started the conversation with James Carville, like what is the biggest problem of, you know, this next generation, I think it kind of has to entail income inequality because that is, um, related to a lot of other big issues, including climate change. And, and one that um, uh, I don't know, like, I, I just think is, is uh, essential to address head on in order to make any kind of progress. Yeah, I, I get that. And, you know, again, going back to sort of my wish list versus your wish list, you know, maybe we'll, as a country made of mostly Republicans and Democrats, hopefully we will sort of muddle our way through and Mm-hmm. and address some of these issues. It, it always feels like they never get as much attention as they need, right? Even when Obama came in, Obama came in, you know, this is like so long ago now, it's been like 12 years, right? Obama came in 12 years ago and he had huge majorities in the House and Senate and they got a few things done, but they got one big thing done. That was Obamacare or Affordable Care Act, whatever people, whatever people choose to call it. I'm good with that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Um, you know, they got one big thing done. They didn't get much done on climate change. They didn't get much done on immigration. Well, they signed the Paris um, Climate Accord. That's, I would say that's something. Yeah, 
I don't know. But I, I I agree. Like could <laughs> could have done a lot more substantial stuff. I definitely wasted a little, or not wasted, spent a lot of political capital on the ACA for sure. Yeah, and and even then, I mean, you know, it, it's good if people have a have a better safety net on healthcare expense. That's a good thing. Um, obviously, they didn't go about it the way I might have gone about it with with Obama's uh, <laughs> Affordable Care Act. But you know, it, it, it's hard to know what to expect from Biden and. You know, we may have a divided Congress. It, it might be a situation where, where just a lot of things don't get done. And you know, maybe we can pivot here for just a few minutes. I won't, um, I won't go too far beyond our time limits today. But you know, you you look at where we are in the pandemic, right? And you know, we're sitting here in December 2020, and some some jobs are coming back, but certainly the people who used to rely on a restaurant job or a retail job or some other job that required being face-to-face with people. So many of those jobs have, have at least vanished for now. And, you know, you wonder how we come back from that. I mean, some of those jobs will come back as the vaccine rolls out, but at the same time, you, you, you look at that and you think, well, is, is there a um, democratic solution for that? Because it feels like when, when we had these conversations about um, stimulus packages and, and coronavirus relief bills, you know, the, 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 the solution for now is we'll just give, give people more unemployment checks or maybe give them a stimulus check. And that might be okay, but I think what people really want is to get back to work. And I guess that's really the challenge for, for Biden is how do you get people back to work? And is that going to be enough to, you know, address some of these issues? So, I'll let you sort of sound off on that if you have a, if you, yeah. if, if, if you want to give us a note of optimism about Biden or what we can expect as the vaccine rolls out, um, <laughs> or, well, or, or I guess, if you want to just completely destroy our hopes, that's okay too. I'll, you know, no, no, I think, well, I guess I'll provide a little bit of optimism, but definitely some pessimism. Uh, in terms of optimism, I think, you know, we don't necessarily have to look at the lessons learned post, you know, de- Great Depression, where there was like a massive sort of like government push to protect wages, jobs, and create a bunch of like uh, federal programs to incentivize work. Because I think now that the vaccine is starting to be rolled out, a lot of these jobs are going to come back organically. Um, and I think they're, you know, that the economy was pretty strong prior to the pandemic. And, and I think it could rebound and it's already shown that it's um, rebounding pretty quickly. Um, so that's my sense of optimism. In terms of pessimism, though, if the Democrats don't pick up these two seats in Georgia. I can foresee the next four years being nothing but further congressional gridlock where even Biden's more moderate platform is unable to kind of go anywhere because there you know, is an obstructionist party in the Senate that doesn't want to, uh, in my mind, show that a Democratic president can successfully lead a country and then you know, pave the way for a future Republican administration. Maybe that's a little cynical, but I, I am at least optimistic in the sense that a lot of the people that Biden has chosen uh, to fill his cabinet are those who are coming in with a lot of experience, who can already kind of hit the ground running and um, use a lot of their knowledge and accumulated uh, experience to um, kind of help get the country and the economy back on track to where it was. Um, in terms of like, how do we get Americans back to work? Now, I, I think, you know, returning to the Obama years is not really a viable option because, you know, I, there's a, a lot that has changed in the last four years. I mean, obviously, you know, as we mentioned, automation is becoming more and more common. Certain industries are dying um, just 
out of the result of like a changing world. And I, for one, have always been a strong proponent of investing more time and energy into uh, the, the green economy, because, you know, you, we mentioned climate change at the top. I think a lot of people don't see the sort of economic opportunity that transitioning to, you know, renewable energy and providing a lot of like green collar jobs could really provide in terms of boosting the economy and employing the exact kind of people who are currently out of work looking for jobs, uh, whether that will include, you know, new job training or, or not. I think there is a lot of opportunity and possibility for um, sort of reinvigorating the manufacturing and I guess less skilled labor class of American society that just so desperately needs um, a jump start right now. Well, fair enough. Well, maybe we'll um, we'll wrap it up there just for tonight, and um, you know, hope to have you back again soon. And um, again, if if you're not subscribed to uh, Prove Me Wrong, please you can subscribe on your favorite podcast service and hear more from Connor there. And hopefully Connor will be back uh, on this podcast as well. Yeah. I'm happy to come back. I always love talking politics, especially with those who don't necessarily agree with me, because I think uh, the biggest problem today is kind of talking in echo chambers, which I am certainly guilty of. um, But I think the vast majority of us tend to agree on a lot of big issues. Um, And it's important to kind of hash out the minor details that we disagree on. So thanks a lot for having me. All right. Sounds good. We're signing off for now and tune in next time. Thank you. All right. Well, that concludes my conversation with TR Smith on the topic of income inequality. Obviously, we could have talked for hours, so I'm sure there's plenty of information that we skipped over or just never touched on entirely. But Let me know what your thoughts are. Um, Like I mentioned at the top, you can message me at pmwp.pod at gmail.com or directly via my Twitter account at ProvePlease. I also encourage you to just follow my account on Twitter, if assuming you're on Twitter, um, just because I do post the topic of discussion for each particular episode uh, during the days leading up to that episode. So uh, for those of you interested in contributing, be sure to follow me so you can know what the topic is. Um, for those of you interested in either just leaving me a voicemail to be included on a future episode or contacting me directly over the phone, feel free to call the number that's also on my Twitter bio. Obviously, I'm uh, happy to have actual conversations with folks, but I also understand there are those who would probably rather just leave a voicemail for me to respond to instead. Um, so I just want to make clear you're more than welcome to do that and remain anonymous. I, I really just want to make this as easy as possible. Uh, for anyone who has beef with what I'm saying to actually just share their thoughts. Uh, So with that said, I also hope you share this pod with folks that you know are politically engaged, but perhaps on the other side of the aisle from me. Um, Because again, my goal here is to extend an olive branch essentially and have a more constructive conversation uh, that's not just screaming over Twitter or Facebook comments. Anyways, I finally just want to thank again T.R. Smith for hosting this conversation, and I encourage you to check out his brand new podcast, Square Off Debating Politics, which you can find uh, online or on iTunes or Spotify. Uh, Otherwise, thanks again for listening, and be sure to subscribe if you have not done so already. Thanks a lot, and I'll talk to you again next week. Cheers. Cheers.